Good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We're delighted that you've been able to join with us today, and a warm welcome to all of those who are watching online today as well. We trust that you'll be blessed for joining us today. Uh, I also want to just at the outset say a thank you to everyone who, uh, week on week, people are working in the background, and particularly along this side of the room, to make our services possible, and uh, they work very hard. And those who um, help to, to steward uh, on the way in as well. Um, thanks to everyone who, who just makes this slightly more difficult phase of church life um, that little bit more enjoyable than it might otherwise be. Um, I wonder if I could ask you a question. What, have you ever wondered what it would be like to see God? What would it be like to see God, what would you do? What would you say? What would be uppermost in your mind? Well, let me read some verses to you that give us an example of just such an occasion. You find them in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and the prophet Isaiah himself has such an experience. He remembers the day vividly. Listen to his words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The prophet Isaiah was deeply disturbed when he saw the Lord high and exalted. There was only one thing that he could cry out. Woe to me, for I'm a sinful man. And that scene that he saw when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what is it that dominates the worship in heaven? Well, it's this threefold declaration of the holiness of the Lord Almighty. It's often pointed out that um, 
In the Old Testament, one of the the ways, one of the devices they had to make something, to show you that something was was super big, was to, to repeat things. So, to say something like the Song of Songs, which is one of the books of the Bible, which means it's, it's the greatest of the songs. And so, to say that something was the holiest of holies was to mean that it was the holiest thing. And this is the only place in Scripture where you have a triple repetition. God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, 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 the Lord Almighty. Well, we're going to be turning to our Bible reading now, which you'll find in the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 52. We're considering what are sometimes called the servant songs in this book. There are these moments in the book of Isaiah where the prophet reveals God's plan to rescue his people from their sin, and it all centers on this individual called the servant. And we've seen in previous weeks, the servant is one who is precious to God, that he's faithful to God in all of the ways that Israel had failed to be faithful, that he will be gentle, he will have a ministry that will restore the weak, not crush them, but that he will also suffer rejection. Crucially, we've seen that all that's said about this servant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who understood his own mission in the light of these servant passages. He he taught that he had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the passage we're coming to today, which um, Heather is going to come and read for us, is as clear as any passage in Scripture and very important for understanding who Jesus is and just why he matters so much. Thank you, Heather. This morning the reading is Isaiah 52, verses 13, and then Isaiah 53, verse 3. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond any of human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like no one whom people hide their faces was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Thank you. When I was studying as a postgraduate at the university, uh, one of the avenues that was open to you for making a little bit of extra money was to assist with teaching undergraduates. 
I remember one particular occasion I arrived at the class 10 minutes early just to be organized and was greeted by a lecturer who very gruffly said, sorry, class doesn't start for 10 minutes, you need to wait outside. He thought I was a student. He didn't recognize me as a fellow teacher. And of course, at the time, I was more than a little put out. Hadn't been given the respect that I was due. Of course, as I've got older, I've often lamented that it's no longer possible to be mistaken as an undergraduate student, but there you go. Now, of course, failure to recognize me, as much as I might not have known that at the time, failure to recognize me is not that big a deal. But the higher up the ladder of importance we go, well, the more serious it can be. We've all seen those embarrassing moments where people who think they're important feel that they need to say, do you know who I am? And how very serious it would be not to recognize God. I mean, imagine if God was speaking to you. Imagine if God came into your very presence and you never even recognized them. It doesn't get any more serious than that. And that passage that Heather has just read for us tells us that that is exactly what happened. In some ways, it's a passage of warning to God's people that God's servant is going to come. God is going to reveal his servant. He's going to do his great work. And he's going to be the unrecognized servant. But it's going to be much worse than that, as we'll see as we go through these verses. Much worse than just not recognizing him. It will be that you'll, you'll treat him as if he was worse than nothing. Now, that really is a problem, and it continues to be mankind's biggest problem. You may well hear the words of God and fail to recognize them. This passage of Scripture is here to make sure, to help you to recognize the unrecognized servant. Isaiah chapter 53 is the most well-known chapter of this prophecy and for very good reason. It's quoted multiple times in the New Testament because the New Testament writers clearly saw that this chapter has a lot to teach us about God's mission to rescue human beings from their sin. But people often miss that Isaiah 53 actually starts in Isaiah 52, where we started our reading this morning. The final three verses of chapter 52 are the start of this final servant song. And you see it there, don't you? Verse 13, the NIV says, see, my servant will act wisely. And I've, I've said this before in this servant song series, a more literal translation is a stronger word. It says, behold, my servant. That's the sense of it. It's almost like, okay, guys, Behold my servant. And that's important because if you, if you read the chapters that run up to this servant song, you find that God gives his people a succession of commands. If you read it from, verse, from chapter 51, he commands them a whole raft of things. Things like, uh, listen up, wake up, arise, Loose the chains from off your neck. Break forth into singing. These kind of commands. 
And why should they do that? Well, because the Lord is bringing salvation. He's going to change them. But how is he going to do that? Because, I mean, up until, up until now, all we've seen from them is that they're a faithless bunch. And what happens is God delivers these promises, delivers these commands, and you're left wondering, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? And then into the scene comes this, behold, my servant will act wisely. And in the, these three verses at the end of chapter 52, what we're actually given is an overview of the work of the servant. And we see that he will be raised high, but brought low. He'll be raised high, but brought low. And I suppose verse 13 fits with what we expect to hear from God on this subject. God has already spoken to us in this book about how precious his servant is to him. Uh, God says, this is my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Um, he's already told us about the success of the mission of this servant, how he will bring justice to the nations. And so we can almost hear the crowd cheering, can't we? See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And we think, yes, 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 of course he will be. That is just the kind of rescuer that we need. This is the one who was promised that he will sit on the throne of David forever. And yet that's not all that's said here, is it? We see that the path, there's a path to that exaltation. I mean, you expect of this one who is raised, lifted up, highly exalted, that when people see him, they will be in awe of him. They will be impressed by him. But we are shaken right back down to earth by verse 14. They're not in awe. Look at verse 14. How do they respond? Just as there were many who were appalled at him. Appalled at him. If you look at that um, first line of verse 14, it runs into the first line of verse 15. What I mean to say is the, the rest of verse 14 is almost like in brackets. It's a parenthesis. So it says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, so he will sprinkle many nations. And in between those two lines is this explanation. There's an explanatory note there that tells us how he gets there, how he accomplishes this mission to sprinkle many nations. And the explanation is why they're appalled at him as well. As people look on at God's servant, what do they see? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. They see disfigurement. And the language here is, is greater than anyone has seen before. So much so that the onlookers are left in doubt as to actually what it is they're looking at. 
That's the, that's the sense of these verses. It's as if people look on at God's suffering servant here and they say, oh, what is that? What is that? Is that even human? His form marred beyond human likeness. Just take that in for a moment. The Savior whom God would send would suffer in such a way that it would be sickening for you to even look at him. We understand that, don't we? There is something, uh, I don't mean to be too aggressive here, there is something wrong with you if you relish seeing people suffer. And just think even of that horrible incident at the football yesterday. Sickening to see someone suffer. And for this Savior, people would be appalled at the sight of him. Such was his suffering. And of course, for this Savior, it would be the agony of the cross. Crucifixion was the most painful and degrading form of execution that the Roman Empire could conceive of. That was the purpose behind it. And indeed, you read the Gospels, the Messiah comes, and we read him being scourged. We hear of the crown of thorns thrust on his head. We hear of him being beaten. We read of his nail-pierced hands and feet by which he was fastened to a wooden cross. And we naturally shudder at the thought of these brutal things. And that pain was real. Jesus Christ was, was truly human. This was, this, was, this was painful in the extreme. But I suppose if you were to look at the history books, they would say that, well, probably thousands of people were crucified like that during those times. Wouldn't they be just as disfigured with pain and with grief? And it forces us to think a little bit deeper about the sufferings of Christ. Because it forces us to conclude that there's something more going on here than just another crucifixion as it might have been seen at the time. There is something that makes the suffering of Jesus Christ utterly unique. It is not the nails. It is not the thorns. It is not the whips. It is the wrath of God. We don't often talk about how, how offensive to God our sin is. And because of that, we don't often speak about how serious God takes sin. It is literally a criminal offense against God. And as the good judge, it always demands perfect justice. It demands a penalty. And so, here's how the Lord Jesus speaks about what happens to those who are judged in sin. In Matthew 25, he says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. I mean, there's nothing more sobering, there's not a more sobering subject in all of Scripture than the justice, the just judgment of God against sin. And when we think of that, we come back again to this cross where Jesus suffers. 
And we must grasp what we're saying when we say that Jesus died in the place of sinners. Without Jesus Christ, I stand alone before God. And if I'm not trusting in Christ, I will face the penalty for my sin. And as Jesus describes, it means I will, I will, I will bear the, that penalty forever, for all eternity. And the reason it must last forever is because I've sinned against an eternal God. How could I ever pay off the debt that I owe? But the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus has borne that penalty on my behalf. On the cross, he really does suffer in his body the penalty for sin that I deserve, that you deserve. And if you like, in those three hours of darkness on the cross that you read of in the Gospels, an eternity's worth of God's wrath is heaped upon his son. And though we cannot quantify what that must have been like for him to suffer under the hand of God like that, we are given this detail in Isaiah 52. He says to look on him, you would barely have been able to tell that he was human. And that in your place. That's some explanatory note, isn't it? Just as there were many who were appalled at him, he suffered so severely. Verse 15, so will he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling. It's an unusual phrase there, isn't there? Why, why does it speak about sprinkling? Well, it takes us back to the time when the children of Israel had been led out of slavery in Egypt, and they were brought to, to Mount Sinai, where God, through Moses, delivered to the people the law. He lays out his expectations for how God's people will live as God's people in the land. And this book of the covenant is recorded by Moses. And it comes to a climax, and listen to this. He took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The sprinkling of the blood on the people indicated that God was making a covenant with them. He was making this promise to them that he would be their God, they would be his people. It was this sign that they belonged to him. They were in a relationship with him. And that's the idea here too in Isaiah 52. All of the suffering that the servant endures will be so that he can sprinkle, well, sprinkle who? The children of Israel? Sprinkle the Jews only? No, sprinkle many nations. When the Old Testament uses the word nations like that, it's speaking of non-Jewish nations, the Gentile nations. 
And this is confirmed in the rest of the verse, isn't it? Those who were in ignorance, um, they're going to see, they're going to understand. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. This message that had never gone to them before will come through this servant to many nations. They will be sprinkled. They will be part of God's people. This verse is quoted in the New Testament um, and quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15. And it's a very important application for us, actually, just to take a moment to think about. Uh, Paul there, he explains uh, about why he engages in gospel ministry. And he says this, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see. When the Apostle Paul understood this about the mission of God's promised servant, he made it his mission to tell the world about Jesus. And likewise, as we read this last verse of Isaiah 52, we have to come to that same conclusion. This is not a servant, a savior just for you, not even just for people like you or like me. He has endured all of this to sprinkle many nations. And those who understand and who know the servant, who know the Savior, Jesus Christ, are committed likewise to that mission, to send the gospel where it has not been heard. Now, our minds, of course, go to far-off places, remote islands in the Pacific, but let us be under no illusion. You don't need to travel very far in Aberdeenshire to find the exact same thing. Maybe we don't need to travel very far in our own families to find places, to find people where the gospel has never been heard. We read that memory verse together, didn't we? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 67 people who are gathered in here today. And there's a tension in these verses, isn't there? That tension, the the Savior, the servant who will be highly exalted, but who will be brought very low. And this was the the great dilemma that many of the, the, the Jewish teachers had in the time of Christ. Well, is the Savior going to be the king or is he going to suffer? I mean, because he can't be both. And it all comes together perfectly in the person of Christ. And it is this confusion that led to such inability to see this Savior. The promise that uh, God gave earlier in chapter 52 was that the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. He's going to publicly reveal his arm. In other words, he's going to, he's going to do something. And what does verse 1 of chapter 53 says, say? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's a big doubt in that verse, isn't there? A big doubt about whether people will recognize him. The public revealing of God's arm, 
Who will recognize the Messiah when he comes? Who will see and believe? In fact, the opening verse of chapter 53 is quoted a couple of times in the New Testament to confirm that when God's servant comes, the response of people will not be, oh, there he is. It will be very different. Listen to this from John 12. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, he thinks about why is it that the nation of Israel have not received their Messiah? And he says this, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And that question is still being asked today. It is still the case that the the arm of the Lord has been revealed, and by and large, he is not recognized. And verse 2 tells us why. I mean, it's all well and good to talk about the arm of the Lord being revealed, but the reality on the ground was this, verse 2, he grew up before him, before the Lord, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And what is that verse saying? It's saying to look on, there was nothing noteworthy to see. Just look at the imagery here. He grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot. A tender shoot, something that needs protected from the elements. Something that you need to be careful in case you damage it. It's especially the case when you become a parent for the first time that you're, you're very protective of them. You, all you can see in that little baby is, is his or hers vulnerability. You panic when you realize that actually they're depending on you for literally everything. And you lift and you move and you carry this child as though it's very breakable. One arm in the wrong place and it could be the end of them. Second time round, you're a bit more blasé. And it's this language of being a tender shoot that really does capture well how the Savior came as an infant, as a baby with all of its vulnerability, with its utter dependence upon his parents, not descending from heaven in a fiery chariot or on a war horse, but conceived in the womb, born helpless, growing up in the sight of the Lord as a tender shoot. Isaiah says he's like a a root out of dry ground. What he came from was nothing. His parents were poor, insignificant folk. His homeland of Nazareth in Galilee was a despised wee place. And the spiritual temperature of the nation was at the time stone cold. It didn't seem likely that some great work of God was a way to take place, and yet into that comes the promised Savior. 
And as for the servant himself, well, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This isn't saying he was ugly, just that everything seemed so ordinary. He was a man, not a man of position, not a man with any recognized worldly importance. To look at, he was just a lower class guy. But this is precisely the point. This is the enormity of what God has done in saving us. Paul writes this wonderful, uh, or he records for us this wonderful hymn in Philippians 2, speaking of the Lord Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is nothing about that biography that, humanly speaking, is attractive until you realize that it was for you. Until you realize that it, this was the only way that you could ever be right with God. But that's not what people saw, was it? They could not see past the weakness, the ordinariness. And by and large, people still don't see past those things. But it's worse than that. Not only do they not recognize the servant, in verse 3, they utterly reject the servant. And that's a strong word, isn't it? In verse 3, he was despised. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering or a man of sorrows and familiar with pain. Here, a savior is promised who will be rejected by humanity, but one who is not untouched by the pain and sorrow of this world. He will not stand aloof from the misery of broken lives. He will come right into this world, right into its brokenness. How grievous it must have been for Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, to walk in this world of sin and pain, to encounter lives torn apart by sin and all of its ugly consequences. This man, this man was despised and rejected. And, uh, well, I guess the well-used reply that reveals an awful lot more about us than it does about him. What must it say about the human heart that this man was despised and rejected? One of the great themes of Scripture is the more that God reveals to us about himself, the more grace that God shows to us, the greater our condemnation. For we seem to be so utterly bound by sin 
that even the Son of God Himself comes into our midst and we bay for His blood. Jesus comes proclaiming a message of repentance, a message of forgiveness. And humanity did its worst to him. Those last couple of lines of verse 3 are so powerful because they say, in effect, what mankind's fully thought through, weighed up assessment of the Son of God was. Like one from whom people hid, um, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. He wasn't worth looking at. Held him in low esteem is this idea of, of, of we weighed him in the balances and we found him to be worth nothing. Folks, I want you to look to Jesus Christ today and I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with God. What do you see? By and large, he's the unrecognized servant. But what do you see? Someone who you've got no time for? Someone who's worth a little bit of interest? Or is he God made flesh? Given for you. Despised and rejected for you bearing the wrath of God for you. In Rome, there is an ancient piece of anti-Christian graffiti. It probably dates back to the second century. And this graffiti artist has drawn a man worshipping someone who's hanging on a cross. But if you look closely, the one who's hanging on a cross has a donkey's head. And underneath the picture, there's an inscription that says, Alexamnos worships his God. Alexamnos was presumably a Christian. And the graffiti artist, he looked to the crucified Christ. And all he could see was utter foolishness, just like worshiping an ass. But for the believer in Jesus Christ the one to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed in that despised Jesus of Nazareth, rejected and murdered by man, is the most precious thing that God ever gave to humanity and our only hope. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To you? You trusting in Jesus Christ? You really believe that he died for your sins? You really believe he rose from the dead? You turned from sin and committed to follow him? Because that's the only rational response if we've understood who he is. Last of all, there's a pattern here. And there is a pattern here. Let me explain it like this. What, what, what is the church? What does it mean to, to be part of the people of God? Well, you could answer that question uh, by picking up some of the glorious language that Scripture uses. You know, the uh, believers are those who are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The church is the manifold display of God's wisdom 
It's a glorious thing. The church is the bride of Christ, adorned beautifully for the, 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 the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming in that last day. These are all glorious things. But there's another way that we can answer that question, isn't there? What is the church? What does it mean to be the people of God? Well, the church it's maybe one and a half percent of the population of Scotland. It's, um, it's that place that, you know, there's lots of those buildings that are closing their doors around Aberdeenshire. It's, it's shrinking. It's a small thing. It's, it's an archaic thing from the past. Used to be big, now it's small. The pattern here. To belong to the church is the most glorious thing. But it will mean to walk that same road that Christ has walked. Just as he's the unrecognized servants. We here are one with him, by and large unrecognized. We follow Christ, and the promise is that, well, the way is going to be hard. It is not going to be a steady walk of acceptance and applause from here all the way to glory. But we look to him, don't we? And we say, if Christ has suffered for me in all of my sin, what will I not give for him? What else is worth spending my life on than following him and making him known so that he might sprinkle many nations? After all, this is why God has sent his servant, our Savior. Just before we say the words of the grace together, um, let me just say if there's um, anyone here or anyone watching online who would like to um, speak about any of these things we've spoken about today a little bit more, please do get in touch. Please let me know. I'd be delighted to do that. Anyone who'd be interested to find out more by doing something like a Christianity Explored course, we're always happy to do that. Please do get in touch. And as Sasha mentioned in prayer, we have uh, there's a young man going to be baptized uh, in two weeks' time here. And if that's something that um, is on your heart, something that you um, have been putting off that you need to do, then please do speak to me about that as well. Let's say the words of the grace together, and then we'll go on to this beautiful afternoon. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.